does not support women leaders, right? Of course, they're going to be fielding more male than female candidates, right? Right. They, right. they want to get the votes, right? The Home Minister said that, like Malaysian mothers, shouldn't be given the same automatic citizenship right because it's a national security issue. If you're not even talking about terrorism, you know, and you are saying that Malaysian mothers with their own, like even these children, they can be national security threats. Well. Men are expected to be strong. They're expected to be they're expected to be invulnerable. So when you're sexually harassed, you actually contradict that image, and that's when you can see as well that patriarchy and in this case toxic masculinity affects men too. Harm men. Welcome back to one more episode of Youth Forever by Malaysia Kini. I'm Daryl. I'll be your host for today's episode. You know, on today's episode, we'll be talking about something uh, which is very, very interesting, very, very pressing as well in our community around us, and that would be gender inequality. Right, and why we chose this specific topic is because by the time this episode is out, probably International Women's Day is already you know gone past. But it's okay. We need to cover important topics that fit uh, the event, and that's what we're going to do today. And my guest on today's episode is Janelle. Hi everyone. Thanks for having me, Daryl. Right. So Janelle is the Information and Communications Officer at All Women's Action Society, and that is abbreviated to AWAM, right? Yes, correct. Right. So my first question is: All Women's Action Society is supposed to be AWAS. Why is it AWAM? AWAM basically stands for All Women's Action Malaysia. But I think ah. for one reason or another, I'm not sure what's the reason. The full name is still our All Women's Action Society. So I'm not. All sure right. So so AWAS is a bit you know a bit scary lah. It's like oh take precautions. <laughs> <laughs> but so I was just looking up you know all the ha- all the things that had been happening in Malaysia in conjunction with International Women's Day. And uh, I understand that over the past few months, there is an anti-sexual harassment bill, 2021, being tabled. So the bill is from 2021, uh, and I understand it's also being tabled at the moment, right? What surprised me is that all this while, did we or did we not have a harassment bill already? Why only now? Um, so there are just to answer your question, right? Technically speaking, in a very piecemeal fashion though, sexual harassment is covered in our existing legislation. The problem is that existing legislation is inadequate. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Sexual harassment in the workplace is currently covered in the Employment Act 1955 and it has been so since 2012. It's just that there are gaps lah, such as Employment Act or short form will be EA, it's faster. EA 1955 only covers the peninsula. It doesn't cover Sabah and Sarawak. That's one gap. Second gap is due to the nature of EA, it only covers employer-employee relationship. So if you talk about persons like interns, volunteers, independent contractors who are not within the traditional They're not really protected. They're not protected at all. So that's the second gap. The third oh, gap at all? Is okay. That at all, zero. The third gap is if you actually go through EA 1955, you notice that employers are obligated to conduct investigations. But if you look very specifically at certain analysis that's being done on the provisions, you will see experts saying things like too much leeway is being given to employers to determine the outcomes of sexual harassment complaints. And um, they have so much power, but on the other hand, the Director General of Labour in the Labour Department doesn't have any power in holding employers accountable when it comes to certain outcomes of sexual harassment complaints. So these are the gaps that we have. So basically, in Malaysia currently, sexual harassment is only being covered in the workplace. Um, If you're talking about places like public spaces, especially where 
SH or sexual harassment is highly, highly prevalent in this country, it's not covered right now. Online sexual harassment, to some extent, it's covered under MCMC. So that's covered to some extent, but there are also gaps. Lah. Things like there is the phrase obscene that's being mentioned as part of the very long definition of online harassment. But because it's not specifically defined, online sexual harassment and all its examples will not, will not necessarily be covered under that act. Um, mm. And if you look at the current processes, like when it comes to um, victims and survivors of online SH looking for redress, you will find that there are a lot of stories floating around on social media or by word of mouth of bouncing, being bounced back and forth between the police and MCMC. And also due to privacy, not that I know much, but generally speaking, because our country is not able to hold social media companies liable like how European countries like the mm. UK because we don't have these laws. So even if MCMC receives complaints of online sexual harassment, even if they're able to um, do something about it, the onus of like the majority of responsibility still has to be put on the social media company to take down the content. MCMC doesn't have the jurisdiction to just take down whatever right. you want them to take down on social media platforms. So it's a very long-winded process. There's hardly any probability of success. So not, not much of a redress going on. Now. There are guidelines in this country. For example, the Code of Prevention, it's a, it's a very long name, but basically it's a guideline um, mm. for organizations to refer to to prevent and address sexual harassment. But it's only a guideline. It's not mandated. So... As, any, as how you would expect for many voluntary measures, compliance is going to be very low because it's not mandated. Right. Um, that, that's why we need an anti-SH bill because it will address a lot of these gaps. Um, not to mention this low awareness of sexual harassment in many spaces like what SH is, um, especially the non-physical ones. Like People tend to have misperceptions when it comes to like verbal forms of sexual harassment. They tend to think that that's not sexual harassment when in fact Right, it is. they think it's physical unless you get touched, it's sexual harassment. Uh, if it's touched, then it's SH. If it's other things like yeah. catcalling or sexist remarks or right. even as what we know from Ayn's case, rape jokes. Or yeah. even like something as, um, you know, like when you ask someone out on a date, keep going after that person to ask for a date, that's actually psychological sexual harassment. If the person feels uncomfortable, that is psychological sexual harassment. So, um, and there's also mm. the visual ones, things like, you know, when you walk past someone's desktop and this person's, I don't know, screensaver or something or screen has this very sexually explicit image and if you feel uncomfortable and if this happens a few times, then technically that's visual sexual harassment. So all these other forms of sexual harassment wow. is not as mm. widely known. Um, so that's why organizational awareness or even individual awareness is actually quite low. So it's also on the responsibility of the organization to have certain measures in place to address and prevent sexual harassment in order to reduce the cases in the long run. So the only way to do it is, instead of having guidelines, is to have it mandated, explicitly mandated in the legislation. So that's what we are pushing for. Wow, okay, that's a lot of stuff. Anyway, right, so um, let, let's go back to sexual harassment later on. Let's just look back at something on a little more general scale, right? Mm. So we spoke about International Women's Day, you know, just passed. Aside from what you have spoken about, sexual harassment, what kind of areas do you think in Malaysia requires a little bit more attention when it comes to protecting and elevating women in our community? 
for me, when it comes to questions like this, to prioritize, right, I mean, I mean, coming from where I come from, I mean, the sector, when you listen mm. to survivors' experiences, it's really, really hard to say, like, what are the top three things to prioritize because every survivor's experiences and issues matter. So right. I'm just going to go on a merry-go-round summary. Lah. Um, aside from sexual harassment, under the umbrella of gender-based violence, you have things like even domestic violence, right? Um, our current Domestic Violence Act, as much as it's quite comprehensive, we were one of the more progressive countries for domestic violence, actually, like even back in 1994, right, if I'm not mistaken. I think we, we were the first Southeast Asian or the first Asian nation to pass a domestic violence legislation. And we have had a couple of amendments over the years, um, one in 2012, I think one in 2017. Nevertheless, the biggest gap that is still there and women's groups have been advocating for years is the lack of coverage of non-married intimate partners in the Domestic Violence Act. I mean, there's this global statistic that every one in three women would have you know, experienced some form of gender-based violence, sexual violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. And the international definition of intimate partner is not necessarily just confined to marriage. It also includes those living together and they may have children of their own, um, those who are engaged, and basically those, in, as long as they're in a sexual romantic relationship, so that's intimate partner. Another example that I can very easily think of when it comes to the gender-based violence landscape is actually marital rape. So unfortunately, our rape provision under the penal code, there is an exemption that exempts husbands who rape their wives. I can't remember what was the But exemption, legally, but... legally, what it's saying is that in Malaysia, if you're married, there's no laws against marital rape. Yeah. So it's legal. So wow, husbands that's can ridiculous. rape their wives. Yeah, I know it's ridiculous, right? It's been it's a colonial remnant, but I don't know why it's taking so long. Nothing the needle hasn't been moved yet in terms of criminalization of marital rape. One thing I have to say that's laudable is the anti-stalking um I mean it hasn't been passed yet, but at least the government has demonstrated some commitment in passing it. Um for rape, right? Unfortunately, it only covers women. I know that it's IWD. But then in the feminism movement, we also strive to be inclusive. And as we all know, rape also involves male victims. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to stress on that. So, um, But unfortunately, it's not covered in our penal code. So male victims can't really go under Section 375. So that's what the women's group has also been advocating for, to become right. more gender neutral. For the case of, I, I think, citizenship, I think Malaysia has, I mean, social media is flooded with that. We are one of the 25 countries left that still have discriminatory citizenship laws against Malaysian mothers. By that, I mean, let's say if you are a Malaysian mother, you are married to a foreign spouse and your children are born overseas. If you want to bring your child back and to get citizenship, it's not automatic. You have to apply. And of course, applications, as you know, in Malaysia, applications yeah. <laughs> are so difficult. Chances almost nil. But it's the opposite for Malaysian fathers. In that, um, Malaysian fathers who um, are married to foreign spouses and children born overseas, they come back, it's automatic citizenship. So, so that's a problem here. Wow. In the case of political participation, I'm sure we all know that our um, political participation rate is actually quite low. If I'm not mistaken, because I've generally looked at stats like, like over the last... I don't know, 10 or 15 years, we have never gone past 15%. And what we're aiming for is 30%. Uh, there so, is yeah, yeah, not yet. We've never even reached 15%. I think right now, MPs, right, representation is, uh, I think, 
So wow. it's 20, 30 MPs out of 222. So it's a very low number. Uh, cabinet ministers, so cabinet will consist of deputy and uh, deputy ministers and ministers, right? Mm-hmm. It's only nine women out of 70 cabinet people. Malaysia has acceded to this international women's rights agreement that's called CEDAW in short. CEDAW mm-hmm. is literally like a, it's like a bill of rights, la, but for women's rights, okay? Mm. And they actually stipulate all spheres, uh, rights that pertain to all spheres, including political. So it is specified that state parties who acceded or uh, ratified the agreement should be implementing what they call to be temporary special measures to accelerate um, progress in gender equality in in whatever applicable field love. So for polit- politics generally, you know, temporary special measures by that one example that very typically comes to mind would be quotas. So if I remember correctly, I think in March, early March this year, the Minister of Law, Wan Chunadi, ah yes, correct. He said that the government will not be implementing a 30% quota for MPs in Parliament, which which did shock me because if you if the government's not gonna mandate it, mm-hmm. you're gonna put it all on the political parties off. That's gonna be even more right. it's that's even more complicated. Even more yeah, yeah. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the political parties depend on the public sentiment. If the public does not support women leaders, right? Of course they're gonna be fielding more male than female candidates right? Right, they, right. they want to get the votes, right? So obviously that's not gonna work like quickly in the women's favor. Lah. So at least in my opinion. The best way is to have legislatively mandated seats. So when one journalist said that, I was like, oh, I was thinking that, oh, that that's, I don't know how long that's going to take. Lah. And by the way, Malaysia is bottom 30%. Bottom 30%, which is really, globally, really low, right? Globally, yes, yes. And, and you know what got me thinking yeah. throughout all, all these this issues that you've mentioned, right? You, you spoke about politics. You spoke about, you know, just now you spoke about marital rape. You spoke about citizenship. And, and you know, the, the question that comes to my mind is like when you talk about all of this, it's really important issues that we have to tackle sooner or later. But do you think that the general majority of Malaysians uh, do you think our leadership itself, are they progressive enough to really actually care about issues like this? Hmm, it's a very good question. <laughs> well, because, I mean, if you look at the news, in terms of MPs, right, some of them actually have, they are very, very, very into women's rights issues. Mm-hmm. For example, opposition uh, primarily. For example, um, YB Nur Iza, mm-hmm. YB Kastri Pato, YB Hana Yo, YB Tio Niching. Um, yep. YB Tionjing has spoken very, very outrightly in cases of citizenship and issues of citizenship, yeah. as well as um, you know, spot checks, period spot checks, etc. In the schools, etc. There are a few others. Um, even um, for male MPs, right? I mean, YB Fami Fazil is also quite he's Vocal quite about egalitarian. Issues, right? yeah, yeah, he is egalitarian. Um, even YB Dr. Kelvin Yee is very supportive of mm. um certain women's rights issues. So opposition wise, you I, I don't think we are that short of um advocates lah. I, I, let me just come up with a random example, okay? Yeah. For the citizenship issue, right? One was, I think, back in 2020, end of 2020, it got a huge uproar. The Home Minister said that, like, Malaysian mothers shouldn't be given the same automatic citizenship right because it's a national security issue. What? <laughs> Does this make sense to you or not? <laughs> Why? Ah, I don't get so it. How, we're not even talking about terrorism, you know, and you're saying that Malaysian mothers with their own, like, even these children, they can be national security threats. Uh. <laughs> mothers sense? and children. <laughs> Ridiculous. Ah, yeah. The one that was, another statement that was very shocking was actually, I think, sometime last year, mid or third quarter of last year, I think he said on TV 
that for Malaysian mothers, right, who are married to overseas spouse, right, if you're mm. pregnant, just come home and give birth, lah. He said something like that, you know, and I was like thinking, <laughs> how the hell are you going to expect a pregnant woman? Oh my god! To sit on a plane, somehow like it's it's a yeah. How how do you expect? Him? And I'm pretty sure and he's like, a father too. Yeah, and and yeah, the, which is even more shocking, right? And yeah, it, it just doesn't make sense. So so this is just an example of how sexist or misogynist, I don't know which one to use anymore, our leadership can be. <laughs> can we move on to uh, talking about, you know, you spoke about all these issues, right? Um, mm. And for both of us, and also many people around us, we find things like this completely and utterly ridiculous, right? But to, to some of them, it's something completely normal, right? So looking at the situation that we have and, you know, the, the, the mentality of our leaders, I'm just looking at, you know, you mentioned that initially we were in the forefront towards protecting sexual harassment victims and, and things like that. But today, if you compare it to the other countries, how far are we into achieving gender equality? I know you mentioned that we're in the bottom 30% when it comes to oh. politics. But if you look at the other aspects, so you could it could be things like workplace gender equality. It could be schools. It could be university quotas. It could be job applications, the wage gap and things like that. How far are we? Um, from being, you know, equivalent to the more developed countries. With regards to statistics, right, what I know about generally, so there are two standards that if you notice that's being reported typically for comparison. One is the Global Gender Gap Report by the World Economic Forum. In terms of Southeast Asian countries that are behind us, right, only Thailand and Brunei are behind us. The rest are way ahead, ahead of us. Not, not that way ahead lah. Philippines, if I'm not mistaken, is actually the, I mean, among the Southeast Asian countries for political empowerment, Philippines is actually the, the top most progressive. For Southeast yeah. Asian country lah. I think it's in the, I think it's between 10 to 20. Philippines is actually very progressive, to be very honest, for gender equality. And, and you will see why, because as I go to the other spheres, you will see the comparison here. With regards to education, actually, I think out of the four, so the, Global Gender Gap Report, right, it's based on four areas generally. One is political empowerment. The second one is economic participation. The third one is health and survival. And the fourth one is education. So for education, Malaysia is actually the, I mean, among our, the four sub-indices Malaysia, uh, education, we're much better than the other three. Lah. In education, for example, we rank 17th globally. But don't just look at the number, lah, but if you look at the index score, because zero is absolutely no parity, gender parity. Mm. One is full parity, right? Even though we ranked 70, Malaysia's index score for education is 0 0.994. Oh, which is really good. Which is really good. But unfortunately, we are not one yet. But there are so many other countries before us that are one and, you know, like between 0 0.994 and one. And you know what's, what's actually interesting? Philippines is actually the top la, out of Southeast Asian countries. Um, it's like 0 0.999. For health and survival, we rank 74th globally. Unfortunately, we are behind countries like Myanmar, Philippines, Thailand, Cambodia, mm. Laos even, can you believe it, and Timor-Leste. So that's health and survival. For economic, uh, that's when we perform even worse la, than health and survival. Um, we rank 104 globally, although our index score is 0 0.972. If I'm not mistaken, for economic participation, I think we're the last out of all Southeast Asian nations. Yeah. Laos is you know, actually the first. <laughs> Can you believe Laos ranked number one? Uh? For I, economic even, participation. I'm, I'm not joking. I mean, yeah, when I check out 2021, I'm seriously not joking. When I saw the, the ranking, I was actually shocked myself. I was like, huh? Laos plays top? 
even before all the other Western countries, they're seriously kidding right. me. Yeah, seriously. And, um, you know, it's, mm. I, I'm just wondering where all this ego of us being, you know, a developing country, we are better than the rest, and, you know, our economic state is, you know, we're not crumbling, we've got all this money, we've got all this oil, we've got all this power, and we, we pride ourselves with, you know, all these ethics and cultural heritage, and, and, and yet we are still so far behind, and it's very surprising. If you're looking for a publication that is gender equal and advocates a sexual harassment-free Malaysia, you can always subscribe to Malaysia Kini for as low as 12 ringgit a month. By doing this, you're also supporting independent journalism. So, why not kill two birds with one stone? You know, on the topic of economic participation, so now let's cover masculinization, right? So nowadays, women being breadwinners or earning more than their husbands are becoming more common, which is a good thing, right? Which is a good thing. It also means that we are moving one step in the right direction. What advice do you have on helping alleviating feelings of demasculinization from husbands due to generations of patriarchal system? To be honest, I have no advice, Daryl, because mm. before I go there, I'm just going to link it to the financial aspect of domestic violence. Mm. So domestic violence, I'm sure we are very well aware of the physical aspect and to a great extent, the psychological and emotional aspects. But the financial aspects also what is not as widely known here. And if we look at, if we look at examples of financial domestic violence, right, it would include examples like controlling expenditure, of the spouse, even not allowing them to open bank accounts or access bank accounts, mm -hmm. commit fraud, you know, like basically try to get their, try to grab or try to take over their possessions, um, right. try to sap them of their insurance claim, um, insurance and etc. There is another very typical example, not allowing the spouse to go out to work. That's actually a form of financial domestic violence, especially mm -hmm. when it occurs within the context of spouses or family members at home. So if you have to just extract this example of not allowing the wife to work, right? This is just a typical example of trying to police women's behavior or rather it can be right. based on the premise that, you know, women's role should be at home. Um, mm. You shouldn't be working. Like, why on earth do you need to work? Your husband work should be enough. What? Yeah, this is, I mean, it may not apply to a lot of families nowadays, but I think in some societies, it can be quite prevalent especially at a subtle level like let's say if you have a rich husband i mean even in my even in my community right there are a lot of tight ties ah if you have a rich husband right mm. i mean it may <laughs> seem normal but there's the question like sometimes people may ask like you don't need to work what because you know your husband is so rich like why why do you need to work just right. just stay at home so it's still large it's largely accepted that women can work but there are still certain barriers at play like women can work but you know, not earn more than your husband, for example. Ah, 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 yeah. Ah. Basically what you brought up. So this right. one, I think, is just based on this superiority, inferiority mindset that, you know, men right. should be performing better than women. And you see this same mindset in, um, even in political leadership and politics. So mm. there's no straightforward, easy solution to this. Right. So now, coming back to sexual harassment, 
right? Mm. I know at the start of the podcast, you you mentioned uh, the various forms of sexual harassment. So you spoke about, you know, the physical ones, verbal ones, even like, you know, the, the example you gave about, you know, having a, you know, very explicit picture on your desktop wallpaper and things like that. Yeah. And majority of women, right? Uh, even the pe- people that I know, uh, women around me, family members, friends, and even some men, including myself, have been harassed before in one way or another. Sexual harassment, right? And it has become a common occurrence. You know, it's something which you never think about when you're much younger. When you're much younger, you're a bit more gung ho. You go out, you don't care, you know, and, and things like that until it really happens to you, right? So, a, an example would be like uh, when I was harassed, right? I was always wondering, okay, when women get harassed, oh, why can't they scream? Why can't they shout? Why can't they, you know, mace that person's face or whatever it is? But when it happens to you, it's the last thing that you'll think about in the action itself, right? Yeah. And it only came to realization when it happened to me uh, a guy right and we always think that you know men are the uh, stronger gender and things like that you know but but when it happens to you you're exactly the same position you're you're being touched you're being harassed what can we do to protect ourselves and how can we avoid victim blaming because it's common it's everywhere i think i'll touch on the five b's one thing that i'll first talk about is document so this one can apply to both bystanders and survivors document as in like basically you note down what happened to you where who did it to you who were there and um, do you do anything else after this and all your feelings and etc so one tip that not just me but also my colleagues um, did convey in you know like um, talks and workshops and stuff is that if you don't physically write down what i've just um, basically the aspects i've mentioned um you can actually send an email to yourself especially after immediately after the sexual harassment incident because one thing very useful about an email is that they have the date and timestamp so it can be very useful as evidence if you want to you know lodge a police report or if you want to take it further um, and lodge an internal complaint to your organization for example so this evidence can be really 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 useful another one would be so i think i'll go back to the bystander because document is one thing that both survivors and bystanders can do but the other four these are primarily for bystanders lah. safety here is of utmost importance if you feel that you confront the harasser, that's when you can confront. So the D word is direct. So you can confront the harasser, um, name the behavior and ask them to stop doing whatever that they were doing. If you're not sure whether you can be as direct, you can try to distract. Um, so that means interrupting. So for example, you try to get the survivor out of the situation by pretending to know them. Let's say if like, this bystander, uh, sorry, this survivor is some stranger, right? But then you saw that this person was actually harassed. So you can try to get the person out by pretending to know them. And yeah, basically get them out of the situation. So the third one is if you're really, really not so comfortable or you don't feel safe doing direct or distracting, you can delegate. So you can ask someone to help you step in and stop um, the situation or get a survivor out. So it can be uh, from a supervisor um, or in the case from an educational institution, uh, from a teacher and etc. Delay, which is the fourth D, is the sexual harassment incident has happened already. Mm. So you provide emotional support to the survivor. So that is not necessarily preventive, lah, but at least when something happens, then the survivor would be able to, you know, like rely on someone for emotional support. And um, the bystander can even accompany the survivor to the police station or any other place that need to go, including seeking for psychological services. Lah. The other current redress, uh, existing channels of redress would be um, police report, lodging a police report. But then again, um, due to current gaps in legislation, it can be difficult to have it charged under certain provisions in the penal code. If the anti-sexual harassment bill, I mean, once the anti-SH bill is passed, um, hopefully more comprehensive, then when it comes to redress, like more sexual harassment incidents will be covered. When it comes to the question of 
I mean, I get questions like even my colleagues get questions like basically like what you asked like, Daryl about how can we protect themselves, right? It's very good for people to know about their rights. But we would also emphasize that too much attention shouldn't be focused on just survivors protecting themselves because that mm. detracts from other crucial aspects of the issue, i.e. accountability to the perpetrator mm-hmm. and what they are not supposed to do in the very beginning and which leads on to other things in the case of organizational responsibility to prevent sexual harassment. So that's why my other um, equation to the whole question would be that by right, preventive um, mechanisms or solutions should be in place to prevent the perpetration of sexual harassment in the first place. So by that, it can be starting to implement um, awareness talks and events just to make sure that members in your space are aware of what sexual harassment is so that before they actually do what they normally would want to do, they would know that, oh, okay, so what I previously think to be normal is actually sexual harassment, so I will not, I'll make sure to not do it. Right. So one way to ensure that this reporting, um, this underreporting is minimized or brought down is to have victim-centric and stigma-free grievance procedures. Mm. So, for example, reporting mechanisms that protect the survivor's anonymity. Right. It's creating a safe space for victims. Yes. And equally importantly, ensuring that there's no victimization of the survivor because when survivor goes to seek for redress, right? Mm. Victimization is a very common retaliatory response. As for victim blaming, oh my God, that's a whole other... (laughs) That's That's another podcast by itself. In short, it's education. Mm. That's all I can say. So, I mean, all in all, we spoke about we spoke about a bunch of stuff today. We spoke about sexual harassment. We spoke about the anti-sexual harassment bill. We spoke about gender equality in workspace and gender equality in general. You know, how far behind we are as a country, where we are lacking and things like that. Patriarchal system, masculinization. So now, how can men be better allies for women's rights? I would just touch on one point. If you just talk about believing in survivors and blah, blah, it's not enough. Because that does not necessarily, for me, that does not necessarily lead to acceptance of like a lot of the gender equality norms that we're trying to, you know, normalize. So I think the best way forward is for men to break this, to challenge this perception that it's a women's only issue. The simplest example that I can think of which would be relatable to probably more people is the gender-based violence example. So I'm sure, you, I mean, you've just told me, Daryl, that you, you, you were sexually harassed before. So I'm pretty sure you would know that when it comes to sexual harassment, or even rape or even domestic violence, right? Or even sexual assault for that matter. Actually, even child marriages, yes. There may be fewer men or boys than women and girls, but men and boys they experience more stigma when it comes to coming forward. And that's because they're also subjected to a different set of norms, but just as equally toxic. So, for example, in um, the case of sexual harassment reporting, right, they will not dare come forward because, as you've mentioned yourself, like men are expected to be strong. They're expected to be, they're expected to be invulnerable. So when you're sexually harassed, you actually contradict that image. So that's why, I mean, that's why a lot of male survivors don't come forward a lot. And that's when you can see as well that patriarchy, and in this case, toxic masculinity affects men also too. Harm men, yeah. So that's gender-based violence. Another one would be, let's say, if I were to go out of gender-based violence and to go into other areas, right? I think one that I can think of would be um, the distribution of work, like at home. Mm. I, I know that. I mean, 
it's socially conditioned like for a lot of us even including women to 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 just automatically accept that you know like it's women supposed to do all the housework right and child care right but if we're to look at it from a standpoint of gender equality right i mean it's okay for men to just be as to be just as nurturing as women when it comes to children right but nurturing also entails taking up child care responsibilities right so you know if you really want to be truly in touch with children's lives so obviously you have to embrace the gender equality norm of you know like distributing um you know like for example housework much more equally or you know like taking paternity leave in this case mm. so they can spend more time with the children and that kind of thing wow and you know to to wrap things up uh my question to you is what would you like to see when it comes to gender equality in Malaysia in the nearest future if i were to summarize i think mm. i can come up with probably one or two points yeah to encapsulate whatever that i've talked about earlier on everything the most most important thing for this country is to adopt a gender lens to everything if you really want this country to be better and safer for women right mm. you can't just address things in uh, an isolated manner so like you can't just look at gender violence and say oh okay you know like or oh, maybe we should you know like criminalize marital rape and blah 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 i think it's not as great lah like if you were to just look at things in a very issue based manner if you don't take one step back to look at the bigger picture and see what you need in order to address every sphere it's not going to be right you you you're tackling one issue after another and it's a never ending cycle lah i'm assuming yeah mm. ultimately it's the mindset that will allow you to be able to tackle all issues right. um effectively grassroots issues correct mm. um for for women lah and you and you have to remember as well that even women is not a homogenous population mm. we, we may encompass almost 50% of the population but there are I mean, women come from all different backgrounds right like on the basis of ethnicity age actually age older women is actually very very overlooked disability status that's also a huge one what else are religion um socioeconomic status sexual orientation and gender identity unfortunately is still too marginalized to talk about it so even just by these six categories right that, that's a really diversity right correct mm-hmm. so if you want to if you want to be able to address the needs of all these women and yet you know like account for as many women as possible you will need to adopt a gender and intersectional lens when you look at all issues doesn't matter political economy right. everything so if you have as long as you have that as a foundation then a lot of the issues can be addressed so so that's my that's my takeaway lah um and when you have this gender lens and intersectional lens or gender intersectional lens sorry this one can also help you at the higher level or strategic levels by that i mean budgetary allocations for issue areas or projects because just because you have a gender intersectional lens when you look at projects like you can't run away from implementing is one thing budgetary allocation is another piece of the puzzle wow that's really interesting is something new i learned today anyway um that's the last of my questions janelle you have anything else to add for the sexual harassment bill right the anti sexual harassment bill so i'm sure for some of you who are aware of what the women's groups are advocating for we are advocating for a more comprehensive and survivor centric anti sexual harassment bill by that we are literally asking the government to delay passing the bill and to make amendments to the current version before going mm-hmm. right to the end so we will be launching a social media campaign soon and it will be called review the bill we are trying to get as many members of the public to pressure the government to 
review the bill so that it can be more comprehensive, survivor-centric. Because with all the current gaps that I've talked about in the sexual harassment-related legislation, we definitely need a much, much better bill to be passed in Parliament. So, to a sexual harassment-free Malaysia, basically. To a sexual harassment-free Malaysia, indeed. Thank you so much, Janelle. It's been so amazing talking to you. And I certainly hope our listeners got something, a thing or two, or probably more than that, out of this conversation. Because I think mm. it's very, very important that we all understand uh, what sexual harassment is, um, what we can do to further prevent issues like this creeping up on us within the next decade or two decades or whatever it may be. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you, Darren. If you guys want to listen to our previous episodes, you can always find us on Spotify at Euphoria by Malaysia Giddy. And if you want to check out our social media posts, you want to you know, find out what else we're working on, you want to read up um, certain articles that we have published from the previous episodes, you can always find us on Instagram and Facebook at Euphoria MK. Right, so thank you so much. That's it for uh, our episode this time on Euphoria by Malaysia Giddy. And we hope to catch you on the very, very next one. Thank you so much and take care. Yeah.